What's up, y'all? Before I read our gospel reading for tonight, I just want to, first of all, offer a welcome back to the well. Um, so typically in the well, on Tuesday nights, for the rest of you, because you've all apparently been here before, um, but nonetheless, this is a good reminder, we, we normally throughout most of the year do a Bible study at the well. And this year, of course, we've been doing kind of a study of the New Testament, specifically from the lens of um, trying to attend who the Holy Spirit is. And we call that series Presence and Power. Um, but we have these, these weird chunks of time during winter quarter. And um, also, if you're not a person that comes to Eucharist on Sundays here, you may or may not know, depending upon where else you might be going to church on Sundays, um, that we're entering into a season of the church calendar called Advent. Um, and so what we do uh, with some of these chunks of time that we have during certain times of the school year, like these two weeks, this week and next, is we enter together into the deeper and longer stream of, of the worshiping life of the church um, by, um, by attending, instead of just doing a Bible study and whatever the heck we want to do, we take some assigned readings from the lectionary, the cycle of readings that's given for the church to attend to the life of Christ throughout the church year. Um, and so Advent, if you don't know this, is the four years, excuse me, the four weeks leading up to um, the Feast of the Nativity or of, of Christmas, of Christ's birth. It's a, it's a season of anticipation. And we're into, what, the second week of Advent now? And so that's what we're doing um, as an interlude for Advent. So with all that said, I'm going to read you the gospel. Please stand together and hear this from the gospel of Luke. <clears throat> On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when, they saw, and when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This is the gospel of the Lord. You can be seated. Advent is a wayfaring season. It begins invariably every year with the sound of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who is not merely a herald of the Messiah, but also the Messiah's waymaker. John is called to go before Jesus, leveling peaks and valleys, straightening out labyrinthine twists and turns into pathways that are easy to travel. Those who would hear John the Baptist preach have to embark on a journey treading old paths, the old paths of their forebears, into the wilderness to the River Jordan. The nativity itself 
of course, when we get there at the end of Advent is also a wayfaring story. The Christ child is born to a sojourning couple, a pair of newlyweds who welcome Jesus, not into their own home in a settled place, but on their way from one place to another in a barn alongside a path that they have no choice but to travel. Even after the seasons of Advent and Christmas, when we come to Epiphany, the gospel will continue to be more or less a travel story, as wise men, magi, chart their way by starlight on a pilgrimage to pay homage to the new king of a people that is not their own. In our reading tonight from the prophet Isaiah, following upon a litany of wondrous impossibilities, the desert bursting forth with springs of water, the blind seeing, the lame leaping, this further miracle is added. In the desert there appears a highway. God forges a path, a path that will be named the Holy Way. A road opens up in the wilderness, a road that is wide and straight enough that not even fools can go astray as they walk upon it. A way on which people can walk free from the threat of harm. And to me, among all the descriptions of this miraculous road in the wilderness, the one that most deeply resonates is simply the moment where Isaiah says, it is for those with a journey to make. It is for those with a journey to make. I think the reason that sticks in my head so much is because who isn't that person? It is for those with a journey to make, and on it the redeemed shall walk. Likewise, in our reading from the Gospel of Luke this evening, what is needed in this story is not just a healing, but what's needed is a way. And behold, we read, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but they found no way to bring him because of the crowd. So a way is what's being needed here. Somewhat more subtly, the paralyzed man's predicament is that he doesn't have any means. I mean, as a person that can't walk, he doesn't have any means by which to become a journeyer, to enter upon a way of any kind. In the dareth of a way forward, the men who are bringing the paralyzed man decide to make their own way. They open a hole in the roof and lower their friend into Jesus' lap. Whereupon Jesus says to the paralyzed man, man, your sins are forgiven you. Which, let it be admitted, seems like Jesus is um, missing the point a little bit of what's going on. Um, I don't, it doesn't seem from the way that the story is written that this man's sin is um, what it was that was motivating his friends to have such urgency to get him in to see Jesus. Nonetheless, this is what Jesus says um, whenever this man sort of falls into his lap from the roof. Your sins are forgiven. And indeed, as odd as that response may seem to us, it's clear enough that the first miracle and the great mercy of the season of Advent is precisely the forgiveness of sins. This is something uh, that we heard in our gospel reading this past Sunday, right? That, that the gospel that John is preaching is uh, an invitation to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the first miracle and mercy of Advent 
However strange this moment with Jesus and the paralyzed man may seem to us, very clearly it is the forgiveness of sins. And while that much might be obvious to us, perhaps what's less obvious is the connection between this first miracle, the miracle of forgiveness, and the one that follows. Suffice it to say that that connection is this, that when Jesus forgives the man his sins, he already is giving him a way. He's already making it possible for him to be one who enters upon a journey. We're not given details as to the extent of this man's paralysis. For example, we can't rule out the possibility uh, that he may not have been so paralyzed that he wasn't capable of speech. And we might be tempted to speculate that he asked to be brought to Jesus. It's clear, however, from what is and isn't said here, that it wasn't actually anything about the paralyzed man. It wasn't his intentions or his wishes or his plans that got him to Jesus. It's the plan and effort of other people that bring him there. And even more scandalously, it's not the paralyzed man's faith to which Jesus is responding when he says, man, your sins are forgiven. He's not attending. Jesus isn't responding to the paralyzed man's faith when he says that. He's responding to the faith of the, the men who bring him to Jesus. Why is that scandalous to us, by the way? Why am I saying that's scandalous? That's a real question you can answer. What? Okay, it's not, yeah, it's not individualistic, yes, yeah. Uh-huh, anyone else? Who said that? Yes. Okay, yeah, he definitely doesn't earn it. Yeah, we have a way, don't we, of even making faith a thing. We're like, you don't earn your salvation, but you got to have faith. And then there's this weird thing that happens where it starts to sound like you're earning your salvation with your faith, right? We could probably push into this a little bit more and say why this is scandalous, but it's not this guy's faith that's getting him the gift of forgiveness. It's not his own faith. And yet, as important as that point is, as much as it does matter in some way uh, that that this man's companions take the initiative to bring him to Jesus. We nonetheless need to resist the impulse to make this story in any way, shape, or form a story about human agency. Um, like, it would be really easy as the Wesley director to be like, uh, to try to make this a story about the importance of community. And community is important, don't get me wrong. But to try to say, like, this is what we got to do for each other. We got to be the people that bring one another into the presence of Jesus, even whenever our friends are paralyzed. And that's true, but that's not what the story is about. This is not a story about human agency. Not only the agency, it's not about the agency of the paralyzed man, pretty obviously. It's not even a story about the agency of his friends, who in some ways, their actions seem pretty spectacular. Nonetheless, it's not about human industry, or merely human industry at least. Rather, the point, especially when we encounter this reading as an Advent reading, is simply the fact that Jesus is there in the first place. It's not that Jesus, it's not that, that the guy's friends get, get him to Jesus, it's the fact that Jesus is there at all in someone's house in the first place. In Advent, we contemplate the simple but inexhaustibly good news that God comes to us, that he comes to us. When those men tear, tear the hole 
in that roof. And the paralyzed man is lowered down into Jesus' lap. Jesus might be looking at the men who brought the paralyzed guy. But our eyes are supposed to be looking up from the paralyzed man's bed at Jesus. Our ears in that moment are supposed to be ringing with the words of the prophet Isaiah. Here is your God. He comes. He comes. Here is your God. He's the one that comes. He comes with vindication, with divine recompense. God comes to you. He comes to save you. We meet Jesus, the wayfaring, way-making Messiah, in exactly the same fashion as the paralyzed man from this reading. We meet him, in other words, not because we have had the good sense to go and find Jesus. We meet him not because we want to go and see him and realize that that would be a worthwhile thing to do. We meet him not because we have it in us to make it to him. Rather, we meet Jesus because he has come. And in his coming, we are already being given a way. We meet Jesus with the same destitution as the paralyzed man, as people who do not have a way to get from where we are to where he is, as people who are brought nonetheless, lacking a way, though we do, who are nonetheless brought into Jesus' presence, encountering him as people who have a journey to make, but who do not have the means or the faculties or the strength or the provision to set our feet upon the path. And meeting Jesus thus, the first thing we hear him say, and the thing we always hear him say, is, your sins are forgiven. And with those words, a path emerges in the desert. In the forgiveness of our sins, we receive both the journey and what we need to make it. On what grounds, we might ask, on what grounds is this forgiveness granted? What justifies or what legitimizes this pronouncement of forgiveness on the paralyzed man? Nothing. Nothing whatsoever except God's own unfettered choice. And that is what the scribes and Pharisees find so profoundly upsetting. At a surface level, they're outraged that Jesus, who by all appearances is just an ordinary person, supposes authority, the authority to forgive sins, which only and rightly belongs to God himself. That's the most obvious level of their irritation with Jesus is that Jesus is talking in a way that makes it sound like he presumes to have the same authority as God. But more deeply, I suspect that the scribes and Pharisees are scandalized at the suggestion that even God himself would forgive sins so gratuitously and in such an unqualified way as Jesus is offering that forgiveness in whoever's living room this is. They ask, who could forgive sins but God alone? Indeed, it belongs to God alone to forgive sins. But what's so offensive, I think, to them is just the idea that here it might actually be happening. 
Here, God might actually be doing exactly that. Here, in the tangled clot of broken bodies gathered around Jesus. Here, amid the crowd of people whose lives are so frayed by their needs that they are literally tearing down someone else's house to get close to Jesus. Not here, the scribes and the Pharisees seem to be saying. Not him, not these people. Because so long as God is remote, so long as he isn't right here, God can be safely domesticated. So long as God is far off, God can be exchanged for an ideology that we are in control of. So long as God is not actually right here, forgiveness can be held and withheld stingily and meted out reasonably within institutional parameters and governed by theologically justifiable rules and procedures. But the Son of Man is come. Here he is, turned loose in someone's living room, and things are getting rapidly out of hand. There's nothing justifiable or rule-bound or procedure-based that's taking place here. There's nothing, there's, there's not like a, a polite or orderly way to tear a hole in someone's house. Like things are very out of hand in this moment. There are so many people who care so little about anyone else that no one can, else can get to Jesus from the outside. And people don't care enough about other people's property that they're willing to tear a roof off to get to Jesus. Stuff's getting out of hand. There's nothing polite or orderly or pious about the way that forgiveness is breaking forth in this moment. It turns out that's not the way that God's redemption comes. And so Advent is marveling at God with us. To be sure, during Advent, we're anticipating Jesus' birth. We're looking forward to the moment we'll look at him in the arms of Mary and in the manger. And to be sure, in Advent, as always, we are already grateful for what Jesus will one day do on the cross. And yet in Advent, Jesus hasn't yet died on the cross. And nonetheless, here he is saying already, your sins are forgiven. Thus, Advent is marveling at God with us here in the living room, here in the snarl of the crowd, here in the open where Jesus' antagonists can get at him, here where Jesus addresses us amid the awful impossibility of our paralysis, saying, your sins are forgiven. As such, it turns out that Advent is a season when we admit that we are just as appalled by Jesus' audacity to forgive. We are just as appalled by Jesus' forgiveness as are the scribes and the Pharisees. It turns out Advent is a time when we need to listen to our own inner voices as we enumerate all the reasons why Jesus isn't allowed to forgive. And of course, even within the quiet of our own hearts, most of us wouldn't say it quite like that. We would never, even in the silence of our hearts, deny that Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. But in practice, that is what we say in our hearts. 
Because we police the spiritual or biblical procedures and conditions by which grace and forgiveness can be justified. Because consciously and unconsciously, we presume to draw the parameters and boundary markers of who gets included in God's forgiveness and who doesn't. We say in a million different ways to ourselves and sometimes to one another, forgiveness is allowed to happen here, but not there. There, but not over there. And if we listen closely enough to what we're saying, we'll hear ourselves, what we really will, will hear ourselves saying is that God doesn't actually come quite as close as he seems to come in the narratives of the Gospels. Because predictably, our enemies never quite fall inside the lines of grace in the ways that we're tempted to draw those lines. And predictably, for the people with the sins that we find it the most delectable to hate, forgiveness never even seems to enter our imagination and never even seems to be relevant to our evaluation of those people. And we feel assured in the irrelevancy of forgiveness for those people whose sins we love to hate and justified in our never even considering them as falling within the lines of forgiveness. Because after all, so often those people are unrepentant. But if we, if, if, if we listen even more closely to what we're saying, we're liable to find that we are just as appalled by the suggestion that we ourselves can be forgiven as we are scandalized by Jesus forgiving other people. Like, really, most of us, I mean, there, there may be a few of us that are really just that judgmental, that we look at other people and we're like, yeah, they're not in, but we are. But so often, if you really listen long and hard enough to what you're saying in your heart, you actually are just as appalled by the suggestion that Jesus' forgiveness could, for you could be just as straightforward and gratuitous as it is to that paralyzed man in this story. Perhaps there was a time and a place in our past that it was okay for Jesus to need to forgive us. But now, we think, now that we're supposed to know better, we're not there or then anymore. A time and place where it's okay for Jesus to need to forgive us. Or here, here in a place, now that we've gotten to where we are, a place where, for example, perhaps we've taken up the responsibility of teaching other people about Jesus, We've gone past the elementary things. We're no longer just getting our own crap together, but we're now taking it upon ourselves to disciple other people. But once we're there, I think it seems to so many of us that surely once we've gone, once we're there, we've gone beyond the limits of where it's appropriate to need forgiveness. I mean, how can you be the person whose crap isn't together enough that you need to be forgiven by Jesus in any kind of a real way when you're a person, some of you, who's supposed to be inviting other people to get their crap together. And so maybe once we're there, we're beyond the limits of where it's okay, we think, to need to be forgiven by Jesus. Drawing the lines thus, we must either live pretending that we are somewhere outside the fray of needy, broken people that are in that crowd around Jesus, so we can pretend like we're not a part of the crowd and we can somehow have a vantage point other than right there in the thick of it with the crowd. Or on the other hand, we've got to dwell in the shadows of our own private condemnation. 
But here's the deal. If it's got to be anywhere other than right here that our God comes to us, if there's any place that we won't allow God to be the one coming to us, if it has to be anywhere other than right here that our God comes to us, then we're screwed. Because every last one of us, believer, unbeliever, Jew, Gentile, etc., every last one of us is consigned to a spot in this fallen world no bigger than the mat that the paralyzed man is lying on in the Gospel of Luke. So that unless Jesus comes, unless he makes there be a way, we are not going anywhere. Throughout the narrative of Scripture, God's saving work unfolds as essentially the gift of a journey. God's saving action throughout the whole of the Bible. It wouldn't be wrong to say that basically the way that unfolds is that God is giving humanity a journey. That's how he's saving people. If the fall is the loss of an established home place, then God is the one in the Bible who rescues us out of mere exile by setting our feet upon a path. From Abraham onward, the Lord invites human beings to delight in sojourning, to be as deeply preoccupied with the gift of the way itself as we are with where that way might be taking us. Indeed, when we enter on pilgrimage with God, destinations are liable to be largely or even entirely unknown to us. So that day to day, what we're seeking and what we're rejoicing is not so much arriving someplace, getting somewhere, but rather what we seek and delight in is simply the ongoing discovery of the way. We, we take delight in discovering and continuing to discover the way forward. The path becomes its own joy. Being given the way is enough to be thankful for. In Advent, we remember that we are a people with a journey to make. The point here, however, is not that in Advent we buckle down and try harder to get somewhere. It's not that we renew our aggressive attempts to arrive. Rather, in Advent, we remember how deeply we need a way. We need a path to walk, and we need to be strengthened to be able to set foot upon it. Jesus himself is that way. His Advent opens up a path in the desert. We don't bring him to ourselves nor even can any incapacity or failure or lack of initiative keep him away. Rather, he comes right here and gives us the only possible way to journey when he says to us, your sins are forgiven. Amen.